You're a therapist, Harry. Do 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 do. That's right. Welcome back to our Evaluating Modernist Theology series. Today we are going to talk about therapeutic theology, as I am going to label it today. We see as we go through Paul Tillich's systematic theology textbook that he wrote, he refers constantly to the situation and how the church needs to speak to the situation, how the church's message and dogma need to get with the times always to speak to mankind's current circumstances and situation. But until now, he hasn't really gone into what that looks like. Not in the slightest. He has talked and talked and talked and blinded us with science and talked yet more because Paul Tillich is essentially embarking on a project of abusing your mind in order to get you to believe the garbage that he's spewing this modernistic theology of his, which thus far has been totally made up by him. Thus far, he has introduced his own historical analysis, his own existentialist worldview, even a little bit of his Marxism that will show up later, and more of his personal ideas on how theology is to be done in order to remake all of systematic theology in his own image. He won't tell you what he's been doing, which is pulling this all right out of his butt and calling it theology. He wants you to think, this is just how it is. He's a neutral observer, after all, a rational theologian who is presenting things as they really are to the world. And today, finally, He's going to give us an example of how this looks. The theologian bravely speaking to the situation that mankind feels themselves in. Let's go ahead and jump right in. The Christian message provides the answers to the questions implied in human existence. These answers are contained in the relevatory events on which Christianity is based, and are taken by systematic theology from the sources through the medium under the norm. Right off the bat, we have an idea that isn't all that off base. Why, yes, Christianity does provide the answers to the questions implied in human existence. Namely, hey, we are all damned. We are all terrible sinners in need of a savior. Wow, the world is terrible. It feels like we are living under some serious curses. But when I look at morality and I want to do good, there is something in me that pulls me towards someone who can bring that good to me. We cannot, as another example, imagine oblivion. We naturally have a sense that oblivion is not what happens after death. Have you noticed that if you black out, if you fall unconscious, it feels like an instant 
after which you are suddenly conscious again, provided you don't have any dreams or visions or anything in your state of unconsciousness, we have this sense that we are not supposed to be just non-existent. We know that there is something more going on, that there is an eternity and an immortality of the soul, which we all, every culture in the world, has understood that there is a non-physical aspect to our existence. Christianity answers all these questions and tells us, rejoice, for God has provided a Savior and his only begotten Son to die for you, so you may live forever, not in judgment, not in the damnation that we all deserve because we are sinners, but rather with the beatific, blessed, perfect presence of Christ. Yes, Christianity does answer the questions, quote-unquote, implied in human existence. The problem is, though, that Mr. Tillich seems to believe that mankind autonomously decides what those questions are. We keep going here as we read. Their content cannot be derived from the questions, that is, from an analysis of human existence. They are spoken to human existence from beyond it. Otherwise, they would not be answers, for the question is human existence itself. But the relation is more involved than this, since it is correlation. There is a mutual dependence between question and answer. In respect to content, Christian answers are dependent on the revelatory events in which they appear. In respect to form, they are dependent on the structure of the questions which they answer. God is the answer to the question implied in human finitude. What does that mean? That means that humanity's existence and their perception of their existence changes the question and therefore it requires a change in the answer. Whatever the truth of the Christian faith is, according to Paul Tillich, it must be modified in its expression at least, but I would also say by all means in its doctrine, if Tillich is correct, according to the questions people are asking at any given date. What does this mean? It means that Christianity is putty that mankind shapes. Now, I have personally railed against the worldly phenomenon found in the Old Testament and even in the modern era. As goes the king, so goes the people. As go the people, so go the priests, who then enforce it. This is something the church to this day does to its detriment. Politics creates culture and vice versa, but whatever the politicians and the government is saying, the people are eventually going to follow with their culture. The clergy then, seeing this, decides that suddenly they love democracy. They go where the winds are blowing, and then they use their spiritual authority to enforce that. The church all the way back to the Old Testament with the Levitical priesthood and according to the New Testament era that we live in, the church has always had a bad habit 
of existing as the enforcer of cultural norms. I say that's a bad thing. Because chances are, given humanity being a big pile of ugly sinners, our culture is going to suck. It is going to be bad. And if you enforce the bad things in your culture, you are dishonoring God. Mr. Tillich, on the other hand, says, no, no, that's a good thing. That's praiseworthy, in fact, for the ministerium to condescend to the base and worldly instincts of fallen sinners. He says that's a good thing. Now, I'm willing to hear him out. Are you willing to listen to maybe an example or two of what he means by that? That we have to modify our answers according to the questions that society is asking. Let's go ahead and be open-minded and see what he has to say. This answer cannot be derived from the analysis of existence. However, if the notion of God appears in systematic theology in correlation with the threat of non-being which is implied in existence, God must be called the infinite power of being which resists the threat of non-being. In classical theology, this is being itself. What? I believe he's trying to get at the root of the problem, the so-called problem that mankind senses. He is saying that we exist, but we are finite. Therefore, we are always aware of potential non-being or not existing at all. We are so aware of our contingency that we look to the non-contingent being, the uncaused cause, our God, in order to receive security and comfort, knowing that God is fighting back against non-existence. Remember, Mr. Tillich loves speaking in existential terms like being and non-being, nothingness versus something, and believing that this means he has discovered the root of everything. But you have to tailor your message and your doctrine to the situation. So what does he say? If anxiety is defined as the awareness of being finite, God must be called the infinite ground of courage. In classical theology, this is universal providence. If the notion of the kingdom of God appears in correlation with the riddle of our historical existence, it must be called the meaning, fulfillment, and unity of history. In this way, an interpretation of the traditional symbols of Christianity is achieved which preserves the power of these symbols and which opens them to the questions elaborated by our present analysis of human existence. What is he getting at here? Well, Tillich is saying that the job of the systematic theologian is to get a feel for what questions people are asking, get an idea of the problems they have according to modern life, and then say, ah yes, Christianity answers that in exactly the therapeutic way that you hope for it to answer it. Don't believe me? Here's what he says on the previous page regarding one John Calvin. 
when Calvin in the opening sentences of the Institutes correlates our knowledge of God with our knowledge of man, he does not speak of the doctrine of man as such and of the doctrine of God as such. He speaks of man's misery, which gives the existential basis for his understanding of God's glory and of God's glory, which gives the essential basis for man's understanding of his misery. Man as existing, representing existence generally, and asking the question implied in his existence, is one side of the cognitive correlation to which Calvin points, the other side being the divine majesty. In the initial sentences of his theological system, Calvin expresses the sentence of the method of correlation. What? <laughs> He's saying that John Calvin's first sentences in his Institutes of Christian Doctrine, or whatever his big systematic theology book was, his only message was, man is miserable, but that means we have an appreciation for God's majesty, but that also helps us to understand our misery better, and around and around it goes. Continuing on in his analysis of Calvin, he says, the analysis of existence including the development of the questions implicit in existence, is a philosophical task, even if it is performed by a theologian, and even if the theologian is a reformer like Calvin. The difference between the philosopher who is not a theologian and the theologian who works as a philosopher in analyzing human existence is only that the former tries to give an analysis which will be part of a broader philosophical work, while the latter tries to correlate the material of his analysis with the theological concepts he derives from the Christian faith. So the job of the philosopher is to look at what is producing anxiety and awareness of finitude in humanity. The job of the theologian is to take that and then use the quote-unquote symbols of the Christian faith to heal those boo-boos. Hence his use of the term correlation over and over again. The situation is the boo-boo that we are all currently needing to be kissed, so it feels all better. Now, I'm not sure he knows what the word correlation means, but his first language was German, not English, he can be forgiven. What he seems to be describing is a relationship between humanity, or the culture you live in, the philosophers, and the theologians. According to the situation, the philosophers analyze everything that is happening, and the theologians tie it all together, put a bow on it, and then tell people things that help them therapeutically, in getting through this life. Theology, then, serves a social function. Nothing more, at least according to Paul Tillich. But that said, he does have some criticisms for other ways of looking at it. 
there are three inadequate methods, as he calls them, of relating the contents of the Christian faith to man's spiritual existence. The first method can be called supranaturalistic, in that it takes the Christian message to be a sum of revealed truths which have fallen into the human situation like strange bodies from a strange world. No mediation to the human situation is possible. Really? He's saying, if you look at the Christian message, quote-unquote, as that which is revealed to us in Holy Scripture, well, that doesn't really work. Why? According to him, it doesn't really speak to the situation, and therefore it can be discarded as a means of relating the contents of the Christian faith. Because, after all, in terms of the classical heresies, one could say that the supranaturalistic method has docetic monophysitic traits, especially in its valuation of the Bible as a book of supranatural oracles on which human receptivity is completely overlooked. But man cannot receive answers to questions he never has asked. Furthermore, man is asked and is asking in his very existence, in every one of his spiritual creations, questions which Christianity answers. In other words, the Bible providing you answers to questions you haven't asked means it is worthless to you if you see it as just the revelation of the word of God to humanity. He is arguing that the Bible as the word of God, which we take and accept for what it says, Scripture for its own sake, that is not pertinent to the culture at large, as if it is mankind's concerns in culture that are more important to what the Scriptures are concerned with. Against the historical basis of all Lutheran theology, Mr. Tellick is making it all anthropocentric. Fantastic. Thanks, Mr. Tillich. Very cool. But he does criticize the naturalistic one, too, so I guess there's that in his favor. The second method to be rejected can be called naturalistic or humanistic. It derives the Christian message from man's natural state. It develops its answer out of human existence, unaware that human existence itself is the question. Much of the liberal theology in the last two centuries was humanistic in this sense. Theologically, this meant that the contents of the Christian faith were explained as creations of man's religious self-realization in the progressive process of religious history. Questions and answers were put on the same level of human creativity. Everything was said by man, nothing to man. But revelation is spoken to man, not by man to himself. He's lying to you, by the way, when he says he rejects this. When Paul Tillich says, Revelation is spoken to man, not by man to himself, therefore naturalistic or humanistic liberal theology does not work, he is correct. 
But he's lying to you if he says that's not what he's doing. Remember, he has been pulling stuff right out of his butt and calling it truth. He has been doing all sorts of existentialisms and historicisms and uh, attacks on normal orthodoxy with sources that are alien to the Christian faith. But he's calling this theology and theological method. He's doing what these naturalistic, humanistic theologians are doing. He just wants what he says to be counted as revelation. But he has a third method that he calls dualistic. And I'm not exactly certain where he's getting a difference between the supranaturalistic and the dualistic methods. I don't understand the difference between the two of them, except that the dualistic method includes natural theology as well as a balanced view between God's revelation and man's reception or ability to receive God's revelation and perceive that he exists. He does say, though, that uh, you can't argue for the existence of God, which is really, really stupid. He says, the so-called arguments for the existence of God which itself is another self-contradictory term, are the most important section of natural theology. These arguments are true insofar as they analyze human finitude and the question involved in it. They are false insofar as they derive an answer from the form of the question. This mixture of truth and falsehood in natural theology explains why there always have been great philosophers and theologians who have attacked natural theology, especially the arguments for the existence of God, and why others equally great have defended it. Now, his idea that the question, does God exist, and the answer, yes, he does, here's why, that that is false because it relies on the question to provide the answer? That's a silly and schizophrenic notion. What he means by that is, it's not pertinent to what I want to say, therefore I'm going to call it self-referential and contradictory. When it's not, it's just answering a question, does God exist? Yes, he does. Here is why. Whether that's through the teleological argument, the ontological argument, etc. and so forth. Mr. Tillich, again, is just saying something. But more importantly, while he is shifting everything to an anthropocentric way of looking at theology and saying the purpose of theology is to kiss the boo-boos and make people feel better according to their anxieties and to the situation, whatever problems mankind is having that the philosophers have perceived with their work, the influence of this explains why you have Jesus is my boyfriend music in your evangelical church. This explains Pastor Skinny Jeans singing and preaching about how Jesus won't break up with you. Oh my, you're dealing with the fallout from your sins? Well, we're not going to talk about those sins. We're just going to talk about how God's going to recover you and make it so much better. Oh, you feel insignificant in the world and the new atheists are making you feel like a tiny dot on a speck in the universe? Let's talk about God's anointing you 
bringing you to such great importance. Now, it is true that Holy Scripture can answer people's problems. It can provide an answer to the specific issues that we see in modern life. But by saying that this is the sole task of theology, answering the questions and anxieties of the quote-unquote situation, Tillich has turned theology into an entirely subjective discipline. And here's the problem with that that Mr. Tillich probably wouldn't want to admit. When he says that the supranaturalistic revelation of Holy Scripture, that method of looking at the Bible, or the quote-unquote dualistic method that answers philosophically as well as by Scripture, when he says that it's not pertinent to the questions that man is asking right now, he is assuming that we have had a different focus in our existential questions. He is forgetting, conveniently, that we have always had the same problem. And the Bible will tell you that we have always had the same problem, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The quote-unquote situation has never changed since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. God's justice against our sinfulness and God's provision of his only begotten son who provides us eternal life by faith in him because he bled for us and he rose again from the dead. We have always had the same problem at the root of all of the so-called situations. Those are different manifestations of the same issue. And if they are always the same issue, then we will always have the same answer that must be preached to people, no matter what. Does that mean that the scriptures cannot speak to your current circumstances? No, not at all. In modern life, we have cohabitation between men and women, people shacking up and fornicating. The Bible says that is bad. And if somebody is tempted because the social atomization has left us with this need, this thirst to just be with anyone who will decide to be with us, and the hesitancy towards marriage makes it far more convenient of a solution to just live together before tying the knot, the Bible does speak to that modern problem by saying, no, go get married. There are so many things, or quote-unquote situations, that the Bible does answer. But it doesn't always answer with, I'm going to make you feel better, Jesus is my boyfriend, here is how we are going to kiss that boo-boo. The Bible will answer by telling you the truth. And ultimately, it will point to the gospel. That you are a sinner in need of a savior, that's the law, Jesus is that savior. Put your trust in him, the gospel. Law and gospel is always going to be with us until we are in the eternal beatific state that is the resurrection in the eternal kingdom of Christ. There's no need to update that. There is no need to change that. Period. But so long as people listen to Tillich, we're going to have moral therapeutic deism plaguing the church. I hope all his theology textbooks get burned. Catch y'all next week. Amen and amen.